0: Hello and welcome to the New School HR podcast. This is episode 8 of season 2 titled Appeal. So, the appeal, aka community service, because uh, you usually end up getting drafted to do an appeal, right? Um, now, that might be different depending on your organizational structure, but in my experience, you're usually covering someone. Well, not covering someone, usually picking up an appeal because the in-house or closest team has already done the disciplinary process. So or the flexible working or the grievance. So let's be clear. The appeal isn't just for disciplinaries. Um, it can be for, as I say, grievances and flexible working requests. So let's jump straight to it. Now I'm gonna start with reasons for dismissal because In my experience, that's usually where you get the appeals, and I just wanted to cover it off in this section. So, reasons for for dismissal could include the following. So, conduct, capability, redundancy, summary dismissal, statutory restriction, and any substantial reason, which is also known as SOSR. So the thing to be aware of when you're looking at an appeal for a dismissal is the unfair or constructive dismissal. So unfair would mean the reason you gave for the dismissal wasn't the real one. The reason was unfair or you acted unreasonably. For example, you didn't follow the actual company process in terms of disciplinary policy and procedure. Automatically unfair would be Dismissing someone for, or penalizing someone for maternity, parental, uh, paternity, adoption, time off for dependence. That's a quite key one, time off for dependence. I think a lot of people miss that. And I've seen or know of absence policies that include that as something that you would discipline. So be aware. Acting as an employee rep or trade union rep. Refusal to re- to perform certain activities that would breach the working time directive. I see this one quite frequently too. Well, no, that's a lie, not dismissal, but I usually see people kind of being forced into doing something that wouldn't, you know, have a uh, consequence. I mean, I've not seen the dismissal for it. I just want to make that clear, but yeah. Uh, joining or not joining a union. Because they are a part-time worker. So you might make someone redundant because they're part-time. Because they... Constructive dismissal, it is a form of dismissal. So this is where an employee resigns from their job because of the employer's behavior. It may be considered constructive dismissal. The employee would need to show the following, that the employer committed a serious breach of contract and the employee felt forced to leave because of that breach. The example I have here is an employee um, gets demoted to a less paid position or they have a refusal of holiday um, or a breach of contract in the form of bullying or ignoring complaints. So the other thing is an employee would normally have raised a grievance at this point as well. In short, all managers are aware of this, Um you know, the the thing I typically see, so if we go along the lines of grievances, and I know I've had the grievance podcast, so you can refer to that one. But uh, there's usually signs that there's a problem quite early on. So you'll get the sort of queries to yourself or the payroll team or whatever, or you get a query um, asking for policy or something. Those are the kind of things you need to act on when, when you see it. Um, especially if it's a name you don't don't recognize. So, you know, there's that. And then there's the, the family favorites. You know, likewise, is there a reason why? Is there any substance behind what they say? So just be mindful of the sort of contact that you receive at all times. So the right of appeal. Now, the first thing is to understand what your company's timescales are for the right of appeal. Um, These are different. I've seen some that are 14 days, 7 days, 5 working days. So just make sure you're aligned and make sure that any documentation that you give that refers to the appeal um, also has it clearly numbered. The one thing I'd ask people to do is number. Number the days, you know. Write in 7. People don't look for the written version of 7. Let's not be stupid about it. If you receive an appeal outside of the timescale, I would look at the case on merits um, and think, is it the right thing to do to actually just allow that appeal to take place? Um, What do you lose ultimately? Because the appeal is the last form of the disciplinary or the company process, if you like, if it's grievance or flexible working. And I would rather afford someone three days to write something rather than them take 30 days to go to ACAS. That's me personally. So think about it when you're having this appeal. I mean, the other thing is sometimes people just don't have the courage. Um, They're not quite sure about it. You know, the appeal process isn't easy. And as an employee as well, You might not be that comfortable with the idea of going against what has been given to you, especially if it's your line manager or maybe it's your area manager, whatever it might be. So be mindful of that. In essence, don't be a fucking prick. An appeal is a good thing. This is what I say to people. I don't get many, I'm going to be honest. I, I don't get many from mine. I don't think I've had any for a while um, from any sort of disciplinaries I've done. But I I do cover them. And I think the premise is basically to prevent a tribunal. And I think it's almost like the safety net, having a second pair of eyes to look at what has actually taken place, having someone's independent view. Because sometimes, you know, that disciplinary team is within the same team. So they might not necessarily be looking at it, Impartially, um there would be maybe emotions or something behind it, so if there is such thing within the disciplinary, you have that opportunity to correct it and look, when it comes to the outcomes of an appeal, it's difficult, and that person has to um sort of articulate it and make sure that it's understood. But that's the whole point of it in terms of sourcing the appeal team. I don't believe in letting the business do it. I think we as HR should do it. So we should be thinking about the case. We should be taking a a very conscious look at it. I don't even know if I think the disciplinary team should be involved in picking the appeal team. Um, I'm trying to think. The ones where I am now usually goes through the HR team. The HR director kind of then decides who he gets allocated to um, in the past it was usually because of the structure we had it would go to the business partner anyway um, because we weren't involved in disciplinaries if you like so depending on your structure it might determine where it goes by default but if you're in a structure like where I am today or even when I think to my HR advisor time the business partners didn't really get involved so we used to cover each other's um, we did it based on geographical location. so there was two in the south or three in the south So you kind of had a bit of a network there and those were usually your neighbors. The other thing is I've spoke about in repeatedly about the format of scanning and keeping your packs. Obviously, make sure you keep the theme. So if you get the appeal and if you've um, got it all there, just make sure that everything is scanned, numbered and referenced if it hasn't been done already. Um, You know, we've all got different ways of working and if you're taking an appeal for someone, Um, make sure that you've got it to the standard that you want it and it's set out in the way that you want it as well. So what is an appeal? So the employee has the right to make a challenge if they don't agree with what they've been given as an outcome. Um, The appeal must be in writing and it must clearly outline the reason for the appeal. So writing, I don't agree with the decision, although you might choose to accept it, um, doesn't really say a lot. And sometimes if you do get something that is really not clear, you know, I have in the past as HR advisor gone back and suggested, look, not quite sure what the appeal is here. Do you want to clarify what you mean? Um, Because sometimes it is about actually putting that person in the position of making them think about what they're doing as opposed to just sending some shit. Um, That that was mainly at the first The retailer I worked for Um, It was just I appeal this outcome I don't agree with it Right why And then usually That was almost a deterrent Because they had to almost say I don't agree with the sanction I got For breaking a process and procedure Because I broke a process and procedure And that is how fucking stupid it sounds at times But Sometimes it's about making them understand That's how fucking stupid it sounds Um, So invest that time I guess in actually challenging back um, and it, look, if they still got something that they think they want to raise and take forward then obviously they can do that so this isn't about um, purposefully deterring people it's just making sure that people understand that it's a formal process and we take it seriously and actually you know the appeal is there it's their opportunity really isn't it um, to make that challenge And also I think the thing that people don't understand is that appeal is led by the person as well. So yeah. The other thing to be mindful of is the appeal that you receive may not be written by the individual that has sent it. And that's fine, you know. Um, Sometimes you complete a disciplinary on someone or whatever the meeting is and you think to yourself, okay, that's that. And then you get this like thing that comes in. Um, that's like, you know, written probably better than a letter that you could write. Um, and in that instance, you'd be thinking how, well, the thing is, and I've said this previously, you have to be mindful that people know people, um, or they might be in a rep, a union. And of course, if they're in a union, they'll get support in writing this document, Um, And if they have a family, friend or whatever, you know, I've, I've been a rep for someone and I've helped them write an appeal or whatever. So obviously I know, you know, I, I wrote that appeal. He didn't write it. At the end of the day, you're the one that receives it and you're the one that's going to have to answer it. The beauty of it is, is that nine times out of 10, the If that's the case, the person is usually not there to actually talk through (laughs) the actual appeal. So it kind of becomes unstuck quite quickly. But at the end of the day, if that's what you get through, that's what you get through. You have a duty to actually respond to it. Do not dismiss the appeal. You know, um, obviously I said about challenging back to make sure that it is an appeal and whatever. But once you have that, or even if they say, "I, I still want to appeal, then... I would acknowledge it and go through it anyway, just for the sake of it. I think there's, you know, like I say, this was mainly at the the retail place I worked. Um, in that instance, I was a HR assistant. So um, obviously, maybe I wasn't as experienced as I am to sort of go back and challenge things uh, too harshly. But I mean, nine times out of ten, when you had that instance, when they had to actually present their case and talk through it, there wasn't a lot going on. So in terms of potential grounds for appeal, this is the kind of thing I'd be looking for. So it might be new evidence that has come uh, available, I guess. The sanction imposed was too severe or, you know, not really appropriate for the form of misconduct. So, you know, if you've got an instance where someone's got a final written warning for misconduct without having any previous sanctions, you know, Uh, you'd probably think that would be a gross misconduct. And if it's not, then why are we giving a final? Um, The sanction was inconsistent with other sanctions that have taken place in the past. So, you know, there's that beauty of employees talking to each other. And you don't know what they all share of each other. You know, we think that it's all private and confidential. But the reality is if someone gets a disciplinary and they're still here, they're going to tell everyone what they got. I don't get what anyone says. That's probably what happens. Um, There potentially might have been a bias in the decision maker. So, you know, you've got the um, hearing manager is someone that basically doesn't like the employee or doesn't want them to be there. And look, as HR, we know that this happens. So let's not be naive about it. We see it all the time when they just want that employee to fuck off and then they get what they think is an opportunity and then they jump at it. There's instances where the employee's record hasn't been taken into account. So, for example, if they've never had a sanction, never been disciplined for anything, and they've been here for 20 years, and then they're dismissed, um, just make sure that there's been a reference to it. So, you know, it's about that. Or there was a flaw in the actual process. Um, And I've seen that before. I've seen so many technicalities like... Letters not be typed correctly or um, things like our processes we have to invite formally to an investigation, but you don't, but it's in the policy so it becomes contractual. Um, so it's all worth knowing everything and making sure that everything is intact. And again, these are the things that if you get an appeal, rather than go to a tribunal and end up having to pay a fee to someone, um, you could prevent any such thing happening. So in terms of the preparation, so you've sent your invite letter, um, the next thing is to make sure that the person holding the hearing has all the documents. Now remember, this is going to be two sets of documents. So the first thing I would always ensure is that from a um, point of view of what pack I would expect to see, is whatever you're going to have sent the employee following the disciplinary hearing. Now, I would usually include whatever documents from the investigation and the investigation notes as well. So, I guess it depends what you do. Um, some companies will have every single piece of evidence and whatever. I just literally use whatever was actually used. So, I don't know, say for example if I had 20 documents but actually to arrive at the decision we only used 5, and that's what I will send. Um, and usually when I make that decision if it was disciplinary or whatever, you would suspect that the disciplinary has taken into account that those are the only documents being used. Now, what should happen is, in the investigation stage, the employee should have every single document anyway, and as part of disciplinary, they'll have every single part. So I'm not saying to sort of exclude anything. What I'm saying is that if they've had their disciplinary pack for their disciplinary, they will have everything that would have been Um, available to use at that point of course if the individual asks for copies of every single document then you have it but this is that whole piece where i spoke about in the investigation that you make relevant the parts that need to be now i guess on the flip side of that there could be a challenge to what you've done Um, but you have it all there anyway so you know if you have to um, disclose something else then you've got it if that supports some sort of argument um, not that I've ever seen that, to be fair, but I'm guessing that could be a thing. Set a time to review ahead of the meeting. So, you know, an appeal hearing, it could be straightforward. It could be a flexible working meeting, and it's just very much like reviewing what the options are available and stuff um, ahead of it and, and understanding the rationale. So there's not going to be that much documentation. A grievance, again, could be fairly straightforward. Um, because it might have only been between two people and the mediation process suggested. Um, obviously, if there's more than one witness involved, then that's when it could become much more bigger. Um, but yeah, if there's new evidence that's been provided um, by the person who's made the appeal, then obviously have that available for the appeal manager to obviously look at as well. Um, and make sure that the the new documents that are sort of provided um, are actually investigated themselves. So if it's a statement or if it's a new piece of, I don't know, an email or whatever, uh, just make sure you understand where it fits in in terms of the timeline or the chain of events or whatever. That's quite important. In terms of the um, the, the appeal letter, It depends on what sort of letter you get. Um, But what I would say is it's not about listening to the person's views on the hearing. It's about what's factually there um, and making sure that, you know, when it comes to the views, the views you're looking at is things that are reasonable to consider. So like the length of service or the biasness or something like that. But it's very important that when you're looking at this letter, you highlight anything that immediately junks out. The other thing to do is to speak to the disciplinary team. So if you need to, to ask cross questions or explore why certain things were or weren't done, then obviously you have that opportunity ahead of the dis- the appeal hearing. Um, if the appeal letter is stating the clear grounds, then obviously you've got the opportunity to go and investigate that. But I guess in theory, you don't really have to. You can adjourn the appeal hearing and then do so if you need to. But me personally, if there's something I can flag and fix, I'd rather do that then. I don't like my appeals to drag on. I like to kind of do it in the day and give the outcome on the day as well. The other thing to think about is um, there may be some questions you have to sort of ask as well. Remember that one of the outcomes of an appeal is that you can change the level. um, And there might be questions that were missed or opportunities that were missed as part of the disciplinary Or it might just be that you have a totally different knowledge of it. And so you might wish to explore those um, areas as part of the appeal process too. So, the meeting itself. So you need to understand that it's up to the employee who has put the appeal hearing in to explain their case, state their case and make their argument which all three things sound the same, but anyway, you get my point. It's the employee's job to make you as the appeal team consider that the original sanction or decision was wrong. So it's not your job to justify the decision. And I think that's where a lot of appeal hearings go wrong. So I know I've talked about PrEP and evidence and all that, but that's in getting ready to respond. It's very different to... um, getting ready to prepare to redo the disciplinary, okay, so it's not your job to do that, it's their job to make you change your mind, that's the easiest way I can say it. If you know something, so when you hear something and you know something to be incorrect or whatever, take the opportunity to correct it when the employee finishes, so when you're doing your summary or when you, um, need to ask further questions you can obviously do that after they've spoken but the main thing is to make sure that the employee has the opportunity to listen you may need to adjourn the hearing um, for another date in the future if for whatever reason you're not able to investigate the points or there's you know new evidence presented again on the day of the appeal because that can happen Um, i have seen it where employees will save their best card until literally quite late on in the appeal and you think to yourself why didn't you just say that in the first fucking place but anyway so there there is going to be instances where you're not going to have um a clear-cut process if you like or meeting. make sure that if the appeal has 20 points that all 20 points are covered by the employee so what tends to happen in my experience is that the employee gets a bit flustered almost or they've got this audience and they just get really sort of uh inspired if you like and they totally fray stray away from the appeal. So what I do is I clearly outline to them that look, you know, this is your appeal hearing. You've raised these points. Could you talk us through each point one by one? And then that way if you've got your notes template, you have each point uh within the notes template, just making sure you don't miss anything. Um, and then getting them to explain it. Sometimes when you do that and you ask them, they actually just withdraw that simple point. But uh, yeah, that's what we do. The thing to note is that if you get an appeal to 20 points, that does mean you're going to have to respond to all 20. So therefore, I use the whole founded, unfounded thing um, as part of the rationale. Now, in terms of doing the meeting and going through it obviously you're going to have to make sure you document properly what they say so you know appeal hearings they do have the right to representation as well um, and you would need a separate note taker new points may be made but what i prefer to do is let them finish the actual um, content of their letter first so i want to hear that bit first and then i give them the opportunity to say look Is there anything else in addition to what you've raised that you want us to consider or review or whatever? And then obviously that's going to potentially be factored into the outcome that you haven't prepared for. But that's the whole point of having a fair appeal hearing. So, the adjournment. So, the first thing to do is ensure that all the points are covered so when you regroup you know that's what i I call the germans the regroup when you regroup make sure that you're satisfied that all the points have been covered fully and obviously think about you would have had questions for each point and you know i always make sure the questions are done ahead of the meeting so refer back to the questions you had and just make sure that you're happy that everything is there at this point, I'd also start making notes in terms of the response. Um, my notes are quite brief. I'm not gonna lie. So, for example, if someone says uh, this evidence suggests that this is wrong, I would put unfounded. The evidence provided does not demonstrate this because, and then leave it at that. I'm not writing a whole thing about what the weather conditions was on the day, unless it's a car related accident, of course. Then you have to. You can. Obtain further input in the adjournment, so if you need to speak to other people, you can do so. Um, I think I've said it quite a few times now. Let's phone up people and ask for verification. Let's check on things, systems, whatever. Why don't we do that? Um, Now, in terms of the outcome that you may be given, there may be an action required. So, I would use this adjournment to consider that. So, um... Obviously, it it depends on what it is. So if it's disciplinary, there could be a change of department. The person might be stepped down from their current position. Um, If it's, um, well, it could be a disciplinary again or a grievance. Um, It could be a change in policy or procedures required. It could be um, an education piece again. If it's flexible working, it could be a change of mindset and actually thinking Um, multi-skill and is a person able to do something different so there's different outcomes you need to think about and that's what the adjournment is there for and look if you have to adjourn for a later date then do so um, if it's not easy to provide a answer on the day the other thing i've put this in the notes but i don't fucking agree with it but it's ensuring that the appeal manager has checked in and clarified with the actual owning manager what they're going to do so I don't think I don't think that should be a thing but the reality is you have to facilitate it don't you because if for example someone got dismissed but they're coming back on Monday you probably want to speak to the manager before the person walks out of the room with a smile and their fucking dick out right so yeah I, I do that um during the exam if I have to I mean I'll be honest in the last place I've worked I mean here I haven't really done I've only done one appeal and it's quite clear cut, so I haven't had to think about that here. In the last role, um, we were given free reign, I guess, in terms of what we did as an appeal team. So we didn't check in, we more sort of notified that this is what's gonna happen. Um, depends on the uh, severity of the appeal, you know. You you might give the individual the rest of the day off, um and then in that time after the after the appeal, you might then check in with our manager. Um, the other thing to consider is if there is a sanction involved, the decision can be stepped up. Now, I'm trying to think. I, I've never seen it where it's gone from a final written to a dismissal. I've only ever seen it from a dismissal back or whatever. You know, It's usually a step down the ones I've seen. But um, it does happen, and I guess... In those instances, it'll be because the individual has actually demonstrated a clear lack of ownership or accountability or whatever it might be. And actually, you think to yourself, this is worse than a final written. This is a dismissal. Actually, I think I've done it in the retailer. I think if I go back in time, I have done it where you sat there and you thought, well, actually, you know, this person's been lenient on you and this is what we're going to do. That then becomes quite difficult for the individual but yeah, so be mindful that, you know, you're not you're not confined to just sticking with the decision um that was given or or overturning it. You can offer a different sanction. I mean again, I've seen final written warnings step down to uh first written warnings. I've seen dismissals step down to final written warning. And that's and that's why traditionally in HR we don't process levers until after the appeal. Period um, for that very reason. The last thing you want to do is process them as an exit and then they will back in. Nothing is predetermined. In the outcome, you need to ensure that the individual has the opportunity to ask questions or add anything that they want to. I always deliver my appeals in person, um, whether that's over the phone or in person, or I guess now via remotely, I mean I haven't done one remotely actually, they've always been in person, but um, you could do. And again, this is to make sure that you explain and you give the rationale behind things, and using the same methodology I said in the um, experiment, keeping it to founded, unfounded, and why. It doesn't have to be any further than that. If there's actions required, making sure that the timescales are there. If the person's being moved to another department, you know, that should be tied off before they get the outcome with a clear date. Um, If it's a demotion, there should be a handover factor, you know, factored in. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be instant. Um, The other thing to think about is if it's a flexible working, as an example, there's going to have to be some a start date for the new contract. Um, if it's a grievance with an education piece, you're going to have to give scim scales. So it is about thinking about what the next step is. If there's a new sanction awarded, you need to make sure that the consequence of that is explained. So for example, if it was a final written warning and it's now a summary dismissal, you will have to explain if it was a first written warning and it's now a final written warning, you're going to have to explain around potential loss of bonus or whatever that impact might be in your organisation the other thing is to explain that the appeal decision is final and that does end the formal process within the business. So what happens after you give the appeal hearing outcome? So look, if it's a dismissal, you're going to have to sort of explain that. Um, What I would do is I would issue the appeal letter and the actual dismissal letter and basically write it as if it was relevant to that case if the employee feels that the decision was harsh or unfair then they can go to ACAS um and then obviously you'll get ACAS contact you and talk you through the process in terms of reconciliation um they'll they'll tell you what the individual wants you then have the opportunity to negotiate that through ACAS with the individual or just tell the individual to fuck off and your chances at a tribunal i've not had to do that so i don't know too much about what would actually happen but there you go um ensure all the notes are signed from the meetings um you're going to want that done that should probably be in terms of the outcome piece but obviously um if you're doing it remotely in Agus make sure everything's signed make sure all the documents are kept together make sure your reference and all that kind of stuff is kept um the adjournment notes, if you have to keep them, keep them, but usually I write them up as part of the actual notes anyway, so it's there. But make sure that you've always drawn reference to each individual item that you've used, whether that's CCTV, memory stick, whatever it might be. In terms of the action, making sure that the implementation is discussed with the actual departments, and then making sure that if there's any training required, that trainers are involved. Um, And from a HR system point of view, making sure that that's processed as well. The most embarrassing thing is if you're given an outcome of something and then it doesn't get action by your own team, that's going to be fucked up. So that's the end of this podcast. I think that is probably going to be the shortest podcast we've ever done. But uh, we all know that um, in terms of training and stuff, the appeals are usually chucked in. On the disciplinary process, it's usually the last part. It's usually about five minutes. So to hit 35 minutes, no, 34 minutes at this point, isn't too bad. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you got something from it. Any questions, email, message, LinkedIn. Have a good weekend. It's Friday at the time of recording anyway.